Well, hello there, top teachers. We are your hosts, Bridget Spackman and Michelle Foray, and we are here to make your life easier by helping you master your time, organization, and productivity as a teacher. Today, we are going to share a book review of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey and give you some very practical tips for being able to apply his theory into teaching. But before we jump into that, as excited as we are, you know we have to share a TSH or a time-sucking hurdle. Today's time-sucking hurdle comes from Kelly. And I specifically picked this one out because I can relate to it. <laughs> Kelly said, I've been re-watching Hamilton over and over ever since it came out on Disney+. And even now that I've watched it five times, I still can't look away or do other things while it's on. But it's so good, so I'm kind of okay with that. <laughs> now, Bridget has not seen Hamilton. I was about to say I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> which blows my mind. Now, I had not seen it until it came out on Disney+. Plus. Full disclosure, I wish I could have seen it live, but it's very expensive, so that was not an option for me. But I will say, once I saw it on Disney+, Plus, I became obsessed. I will say one thing that has helped me kind of maintain my productivity is I will listen to just the soundtrack. So I'll have it playing through my Alexa or through my phone. And that way I can do other things while still listening and enjoying it. No, that's a really good tip. I love it. Um, so I feel like we decided to do this podcast because Michelle and I realized that we had something in common. Well, yes, I know we have a lot of things in common, but <laughs> I felt like we ha- we realized that we had both read the seven habits of highly effective teens when we were kids. Now, the difference is Bridget doesn't remember like how she got the book or why she got the book. No idea. I, on the other hand, was forced to read the book by my mother. (laughs) She, for whatever reason, thought I really needed to read it. And I remember it was around the time I was supposed to get my license and your parent had to sign your book to acknowledge how many hours you had driven. And she like would not sign my book until I finished reading The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens. That is vicious. (laughs) I flipping love it. And I'm going to make Ian do the exact same thing when he gets older. <laughs> I but I seriously don't even remember where I got the book. Like I can't I don't remember my mom buy like buying me a book. She didn't buy me a ton of books. Like I didn't have a ton of books growing up as a kid. So I don't know where in the world I got it. It must have been fate. They knew somewhere in the universe, someone knew that we were going to later be recording this podcast together. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Um, but we both read it and we you know, we we read this independently and we really never kind of discussed it. But as we talk a lot about productivity and organization and time management, as Michelle and I do so many, many times, especially during our walks, we um, would always kind of think back to that whole, you know, being a highly effective person or a teen, because I felt like a lot of those habits just really easily applied to what it was that we were talking about. And so we decided, well, why don't we just do a book review? Why don't we read this book together over the summer? Because of course we have a little bit more time than we normally do. And then we can talk about it here with all of you. So we can share our insights, what we really took away from it. um, And then kind of talk to you all about how it applies to teaching. And then if you want to end up reading the book, now you have kind of a leg up in the game, right? Yes. And that way we're giving you all just kind of the synopsis of it and giving you an overview of those habits. And if it's something that 
that sparks your interest, we will have the link for the book down in the show notes so you can grab yourself a copy and read it. You can get a physical copy. You can get the audiobook, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> but we're going to give you all just a very basic overview of each habit, and we're going to really try to focus on how does this apply to our lives as teachers. So let's talk a little bit about these seven habits that Stephen Covey has pretty much outlined in his book. Now, he believes that these are the necessary habits that you have to have in order to become an effective person, okay? So we're saying an effective person, not a teacher, but we're going to learn about how these will apply in our teaching world. And he um, really kind of outlines these as just being a well-rounded person. That's kind of what I thought about it just in general. It's just about being a good person overall, because you have what he calls his private victories, which are habits one through three, where I think of it's more personal, right? Um, and then he has the public victories, which are habits four through six. And you build these in order, and it's meant to really just help you in all areas of your life. So before we jump into each habit, let's go ahead and give you what Stephen Covey defines a habit as, kind of that definition. So he says a habit is the intersection of knowledge, skill, and desire. So he says knowledge is the theoretical paradigm. So it's the what to do and the why. Skill is the how to do it. And desire is the motivation. So that's the want to do it. And he says you have to have all three of these in order to form a habit. So let's jump into the first habit. Habit number one is be proactive. Oh, Michelle, have we talked about being proactive before? You know, it rings a bell. I think we've mentioned uh, it once or twice. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but we talk that habit one talks about being proactive and it's really about taking control of your own fate. So staying away from being reactive, which people oftentimes um, are affected by like their a physical environment and being proactive is more about just being able to carry your own weather. And this reminded me of a quote that I have been using for several years. In fact, I know I mentioned it on my YouTube channel a few years ago. And I remember having people go, oh my gosh, I've never heard that. It's just such a good analogy. And you all know, I love myself a good analogy. So the analogy is basically between a thermometer and a thermostat. So if you think about it, a thermometer reacts to its environment. So if it's warm, the thermometer is going to go up. If it's cold, the thermometer is going to go down. So a thermometer is reactive, whereas a thermostat is proactive. The thermostat is actually in control of the environment. If you want it to be warmer, you just click on the thermostat and it's going to change the temperature. So when you're thinking about being reactive versus being proactive, you really want to focus on that thermostat. You want to be in control of the weather around you instead of just reacting to it. And I think more than anything, what matters most is how we respond to what we experience in life. Right, Michelle? Like, I think it's we know bad things are going to end up happening. Things are not always going to go the way that we want them to go. But it's about that experience and saying, OK, so this happened today. Here's how I reacted. Now, how am I going to be proactive so that it doesn't happen again in the future? Oftentimes, I feel like we will just kind of be upset about it, go to bed angry, and then we don't even take the time to think and process everything that went on so that we can ensure that it never happens again. Yeah. So let's go ahead and transition into the teaching application of this, because as teachers, we know that 
there are a lot of factors we don't have control over. A lot of times we don't have control over the curriculum, over decisions being made by our district. And I'm saying that right now because so many decisions are being made in terms of the fall (laughs) and what to do. We don't have control over a lot of our due dates or behaviors in our classroom. But we have to ask ourselves these proactive questions. What is our response and what are we going to do? If we can't control these things, we can control our response to them. And we really have to pay attention and listen to the language that we're using every day. So if you're using the, well, I can't do that, or I just don't have time, then you're being reactive. And we will all say this at some point in our lives, we have all said this, but by listening and then also reflecting on that and thinking about, well, how can I really change this? We can start to use more proactive language, something like, let's look at our alternatives, or I can, or I can control this, or I will be able to do this. Um, And that's the type of language that we need to be utilizing, because I think when we say it, we feel it, right? So you, you end up saying something, you start to believe it more often. Yeah, I definitely think having a, uh, what is it, reactive mindset is very much a self, self-fulfilling self prophecy. Words are hard. <laughs> yeah. And when you are just reacting to things, your reaction is going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. But if you put yourself in control and you decide what you're going to do with what you have control over, Stephen Covey refers to this as your circle of influence. These are the things that you actually have control over. When you choose to focus on those, you're going to be in a much better place and you're not going to feel like everything is happening to you and you're overwhelmed and you're stressed and there's nothing you can do about it. Instead, you're going to feel empowered by your choices and be able to take control. And this brings us to the haves and the bees. For some odd reason, I always think about like the birds Birds and the the bees. bees. (laughs) And I think, I don't know why it's, but I just like, okay, focus. Cannot think about birds and bees right now haves and the bees. Um, But we often will say like, I wish I could have that. Or if I have, you know, had this, then I would be able to do that. Instead, we need to start saying things more like, you know, I am going to be uh, proactive or I'm going to be productive or I'm going to be efficient or um, I'm going to be a more positive person. And again, it goes back to that when we say it, if we keep repeating it and we say it out loud, then we are going to believe it more often. I, I have to stop real fast because I feel like I have a memory, a connection that I'm making at the moment. Okay, go for so, it. So back when I was in school to be a teacher, so teacher school, that's what you want to call it. I had this like rad hip, like young, well, I think she was young, young, like <laughs> professor. She was so cool. All okay. right. She was a professor that had like red pleather stiletto heels and she would come in and she had like her pink highlighted under her hair and she had like bleach blonde right above it. Like she was rad. Okay. She was pretty cool. Well, every single day she would have us read positive affirmations. Okay. So she started class and she was like, here's your positive affirmations. Keep this in your folder. Bring it to class every single day. And legit Every class, I'm not even lying to you, every class, we would have to stand up one by one and say one of the positive affirmations. But let me tell you, the more and more we did it, at first we thought it, we all thought it was done. And we were like, this is ridiculous. I cannot believe that she's making us waste this time. I hate this, blah, 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 blah. The more I did it, the more I flip and loved it. And I kept using those affirmations. I still have that paper. Those affirmations, I kept using it and I started to believe in it so much more. 
I love that. I had a professor in college. We're going on a tangent, but that's okay. That's all right. (laughs) If you all listen to us by now, you know that that happens. I had a professor when I was in college. She taught a classroom management course, and she had us write down something that we wanted to be in our lives. And I actually wrote down that I wanted to be an author. And this was like outside of teaching, right? Like it was just something you wanted to accomplish or something you wanted to become. And we had to like go around the room and like sign each other's is like, I don't know, a way to acknowledge that it was real type of thing. But it's very ironic because now I am a published author. So like it happened. <laughs> and I just thought yeah, that was Yeah, go ahead cool. and put the plug in there. Go ahead. Go do it right now. Uh, yeah, I wrote a book. Tell us what it is. <laughs> uh, it's called The Entrepreneur Side Hustle Handbook, available on Amazon. I'll link it for you. No, I'm just kidding. But like... <laughs> Bridge- no, but for real, we will. <laughs> yeah. And so it's just one of those things where I didn't think it was ever going to happen. And then now like seeing it come to fruition is a really cool experience. But I did want to share a quote from the book. Stephen Covey says, sometimes the most proactive thing we can do is to be happy, just to genuinely smile. And this reminded me of a quote I actually wrote myself when I was in like middle school or high school. You all have to know growing up, I was obsessed with quotes. I had a book where I would handwrite all of my favorite quotes. And I mean, I had hundreds of them in there. And one day I realized, well, I want to have my own quote. Like I want someone to be able to quote me one day. So I spent like a week coming up with this quote, which has never really gone anywhere. But if you all listen to it, please quote me somewhere on Instagram and put like Michelle Foray. (laughs) But anyway, so the quote, and I'm going to try to do this from memory because I didn't write it down, but it was, hope isn't believing that everything's going to turn out okay. Hope is deciding that you'll be happy either way. Why I made it rhyme, I don't really know. But it's that whole you know, deciding, well, I'm just going to be happy regardless of what happens because I may not have control over it. And I just felt like it kind of applied and I wanted to, you know, get my quote out there. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. I think that was a great quote. Okay. So are we ready for habit two? Yes. I'll let you start because this was Bridget's favorite. I did. I did really love this one. I mean, I liked all of them. Don't get me wrong, but I do love this one. And it's mainly because I feel like I was already doing it. So I probably felt really, really happy about that part. But habit two is begin with the end in mind. I love this. And really, it's all about having a more exact picture of what it is that you are wanting to accomplish. The more exact, the more realistic this picture is, the better its execution is going to be and the better the result at the end of the day. So it goes so I guess, hold on, I'm I'm jumping ahead of myself of like where it's going to go. And we're definitely going to get into the teaching. I don't want to say anything yet, but we will definitely kind of talk about how this transitions to the teaching world. But I do love this so, 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 so much. Yeah. One of the things I love that Stephen Covey said is that you actually perform an action twice. The first time it's in your mind, it's the mental creation. And then the second time it's that physical creation. So you actually doing it. And what I loved is he gave this analogy of you don't want to get so caught up in the busyness of just completing task after task and activity after activity. So you're trying to climb this ladder to success, right? By doing all of these things, you're getting higher and higher up the ladder. Well, what happens if you get to the top of the ladder and you realize you're leaning against the wrong wall? Like you did not even have the correct goal in mind, but you were so busy doing all of these things that you didn't even pay attention to the actual end. So I really liked, he said, it's better to plan than continue plowing on in the wrong direction. So it's really taking that time at the beginning to make sure that you have a plan and that you have that end goal in mind before you start the work. 
Yeah. And he does also mention to develop a personal mission statement. Um, and I, I believe this is one that I did not make up. He actually, I, I've, I'm almost certain said it within the book. Um, also, just a little bit more background information, guys. Michelle actually read the physical book. I cheated and I listened to the audiobook because I like audiobooks a ton. Um, so I was like trying to write things down as I'm like doing the dishes. Not efficient at all. <laughs> that was a great it mental image. Work. Yeah, it doesn't work. Um, but I really liked this mission statement and I'm taking it for myself. So feel free to take this as well. Um, so the example that he gave was, I value my work and family equally and seek to balance my time. Ooh, I love that. That was beautiful. Can you it say that beautiful. again? I value my work and family equally and seek to balance my time. And I feel like for so many, many teachers out there, I think that's a really big one, right? We want to be able to balance our work and our life because we value both of them and we know the importance of both of them, but we also need to make sure that we're giving both of them the time and the love that they deserve. Yeah, I love that. So now as we transition into how can you apply this to teaching, let's just start with that mission statement. You could actually create your own mission statement as a teacher. What Bridget just described was more of like her mission statement as a person in general, but you could even create one more specific to you as a teacher. Like what is your mission as a teacher? And honestly, if you are a newer teacher or maybe you're looking to change schools or districts and you're going on interviews, I think that would be a fantastic thing to share in an interview. Like here is my teacher mission statement. And then going a step further, you can actually work together as a class class to come up with a class mission statement. Put it on some chart paper, hang it up in your room. It doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be fancy, but it can be that daily reminder to your students of what that end goal is as a class. And going back to when I first introduced this habit, I mentioned it's my favorite. And it's because this is exactly what I believe and strive for every time I go to lesson plan. It's like planning a unit for your class. So you plan with the end in mind so that you know the path that you're having to take. If we're not really thinking about the end and we're just planning our lessons just to kind of go through the motions and we're trying to hit all the standards instead of thinking like bigger picture, what is this supposed to end up looking like, then we're wasting time. I mean, you're doing lessons like, is there a true objective? Is it really helping you to be able to reach the goals? Is it helping your students at the end of the day, really to master the content that you're teaching them? So planning with the end in mind when it comes to your lessons is incredibly important. And then taking it even further and getting your students to realize the end before they start working on a project is equally important because they have to know what the end product is supposed to look like so that they have a very clear path with, with the steps that they have to take in order to be successful. You all can't see it because, you know, you're listening to a podcast. But as Bridget and I are recording this through Skype, I'm just sitting here like nodding my head like, yes, girl. Yes, that's exactly Preach it. it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's move on to habit three because habit two was Bridget's favorite. I think habit three was my favorite. Quick story, as I was reading habit three, um, it was about two o'clock in the morning. I had a night where I couldn't sleep. <laughs> and so I said, all right, let me read. I don't want to be on my phone. I don't want to watch TV. That's going to keep me up. So I said, okay, I'm going to read. So I went downstairs and got my book because I typically read. We have this little like room off of our kitchen. So I got my book. I come upstairs. I got a little, you know, book light so I wouldn't wake Billy up. But 
he's a soft sleeper. So he kept waking up. And the next day, Billy said to me, he's like, were you having study hall at like 2 a.m.? He's like, not only were you reading, you were like highlighting and taking notes. And I'm like, I'm sorry, (laughs) I was really into this one. (laughs) So habit three is put first things first. Okay. We already mentioned that when you create something, you actually create it twice. You have that mental creation and then the physical creation. So habit three is all about that physical creation. It's really taking that mission that you already developed in habit two and you're now putting it into practice. And this is going to be challenging because we have those everyday roles and responsibilities. I pulled out a little tough love quote. I'm going to have Bridget read it to you all. It was one of those quotes where I read it and I was just like, you know what? I needed to hear this. Okay. So I'm going to use my quote voice. (laughs) I can't she wait to hear that. Her coffee. <laughs> I know I took a sip of coffee at the wrong time. <laughs> All right, here we go. Oh, now I'm laughing. All right, here we go. The successful person has the habit of doing the things failures don't like to do. They don't like doing them either necessarily, but their disliking is subordinated to the strength of their purpose. I'm doing like those clap, like poetry claps, Thank you know, you. where you snap. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love those. Those are those are the best. <laughs> But I love that quote because it's saying, look, people who do the things that they don't like to do, it's not saying like, oh, yeah, I love to write up report cards or I love to sit through this PD meeting. Like, no, successful people don't like doing those things either, but they realize that their purpose is more important than the fact that they just don't want to do something. And they're putting that purpose first. And at the end of the day, this requires really good time management skills. And unfortunately, most time management really focuses on increasing the efficiency and not really improving on the effectiveness. I feel like a lot of the times we're always searching for, okay, well, I need more time management stuff. Like what else is going to help me with my time management? So you have the timers and the planners and, you know, all the things, but really you just need one thing and you need to improve the effectiveness of that one thing. And he actually says the challenge is not to manage our time, but to manage ourselves. And it's how are we actually executing this? Because you can buy all of the adorable planners and surround yourself. Like I'm envisioning like laying in my bathtub with just all my planners that I've bought over the years, like, (laughs) you know, all around me. Uh, If I don't open them up and actually utilize them, and I'm not talking about buying it and setting it up with all the cute stickers and whatnot, and then never touching it again. I'm talking about day after day, week after week, you open up that planner, you're planning ahead of time, you're coming up with how you're going to execute your week. That is what's going to actually help you be more effective with your time management. It's not just the things, it's how are you executing it. And speaking of execution of those things, we really have to identify what things we should be doing in the first place, right? This is putting first things first. And so uh, Stephen Covey talks a lot about the time management matrix, which um, is something that we've actually already talked about a lot on this podcast, except we called it the Eisenhower matrix. Um, So it's just, it's the same thing process. It's the same quadrants, four quadrants, but they just kind of make different titles for them. So this is a four quadrant system. The first quadrant is, are those items that are important and urgent? Okay. Second quadrant are items that are important and not urgent. Third quadrant 
are not important but urgent and the quadrant four are not important and neither urgent. So Stephen Covey talks a lot about having to spend the majority of your time needs to be spent in quadrant two. This is what is important but not urgent. But oftentimes we spend more time in quadrant one where we're basically putting out fires essentially. Yeah. And as we transition to, okay, what does this mean for teaching? He actually talked about like what happens if you are spending too much time on like quadrant one or quadrant three or quadrant four. And what really stuck out to me is he said, if you are spending your time in quadrant one, those are the important and urgent things. Your results are going to be stress and burnout. And when I saw that word burnout, I was like, uh, welcome to teaching. Like that is what happens to teachers. They focus on those important and urgent things. So thinking like getting report cards done and parent teacher conferences and all that, they don't spend a lot of time in quadrant two. And the reason is those items in quadrant two are not urgent. And so we tell ourselves, well, I don't need to do that. I I can put that off. It's not urgent right now. Like, yeah, it's important, but it's not urgent. And as a result, we end up feeling stressed and we end up feeling burnt out. But if we shift our focus and we spend most of our time focusing on quadrant two, some of the words he used to describe the results are balance and discipline. And once again, I went, oh my goodness, how many times have we heard that in the teaching community? Like, oh, I just want to be balanced or I need to be more disciplined. And it's like, well, hello, like quadrant two, it's right there for you. Quadrant (laughs) two. It screams it. And basically this means that we have to be able to say no to other activities. Sometimes things are going to be urgent, but yet does it really need to be something that we're focusing a lot of our energy into? No, we need to be focusing on those quadrant two items. So we have to keep in mind that you are always going to say no to something you have to choose what you're going to end up saying no to. And so often I feel like this is something Michelle and I go back to over and over and over again. Everybody wants to know, how do we get it all done? It's because we say no to so many other things. Yep. 100%. And it's just a matter of choosing. What are you going to say no to? What is going to be your priority? What are your first things that you're going to put first? And one recommendation he did make is to organize your life on a weekly basis. This is something Bridget and I have been preaching for a long time, that we really like to organize our lives on a weekly basis. But one thing he did suggest that was new to me, and I really like this, is the incorporation of roles and goals. I don't just like it because it rhymes, although that's probably part of it. <laughs> but it is. I really like this because as teachers, we have a lot of roles. I mean, I think about Bridget. Bridget is the role of a mother. She's the role of a wife. She's the role of a teacher. She's the role of a business owner. She's the role of a podcaster. Like all of these different things. Why are you giving me a stink face right now? That's a lot. That is a lot. <laughs> hey, it's your life, not mine. <laughs> but within that, she has to set goals in each of those areas as she plans out her week. So she needs to go, okay, this week as a mother, what are my goals? It might be going to Blaine's wrestling match. Not right now because of social distancing and wrestling definitely does not fit that, but you get the point. It's taking all of these roles and coming up with new goals. Then 
He mentions adapting daily because we know how hectic the day-to-day can be. And this is like Bridget and I's power list. We discuss creating your power list for the week and then on that day going, okay, I'm going to do these three items. Or if I don't get to one of them, but maybe I had something else come up, it's just being flexible and adapting. I will say Bridget and I actually go through the process of creating your weekly schedule, an actual effective weekly schedule in our live PD. As you all know, our live PD, PD that was scheduled for March did have to get rescheduled. We still do not have a date because there is so much up in the air. However, when we do announce our next live PD, keep in mind, if you all come to that, we're going to take you through step by step how to actually follow this process and create that weekly schedule that will allow you to reach all of those goals for all of those roles. And we are also going to be launching a nice little online version version of this PD because I know so many of you are like, well, I don't live near Pennsylvania or Maryland. I can't do that. Well, we have a little something for you too. So you will be able to take away some of the really good tips and tricks that we're going to provide in that live PD so that you could have it right on your couch at home. It's fantastic. All right, let's go into habit number four, which habit number four I feel like I remember quite vividly Michelle telling me, I don't like this habit. (laughs) Which you'll understand why in a second. You are going to understand completely in a moment. Win-win means that you want to have this um, mindset that both of you are going to leave. The two parties that are kind of having a conversation are going to leave mutually benefiting from something. They're going to be mutually satisfied. So when you think win-win, you have to kind of see it as cooperative. And where some people, which the opposite of win-win is win-lose, are very competitive in this area. You said some Um, people. I I think you really met Michelle. (laughs) Michelle is very competitive. And so I feel like she has a tendency to use a a win-lose mindset instead of a win-win mindset. Yeah, no. I'm like, I'll just go with the flow. So what am I? I'm going to go with the flow. I mean, I'm neither. Well, but remember they talked about like, so there was win-lose and then there was lose-win. I almost feel like it would fit more in that where like, instead of, because I want to win, not that I want other people to lose, but it's just, I'm very focused on winning. (laughs) Whereas you might be more focused on like, well, if I have to lose, that's fine if someone else is winning. But ideally, because, and this habit is think win-win. I don't know if we said the actual habit, but it's, you want to be able to create that agreement where both parties are going to benefit. And Stephen Covey mentions this option of no deal, which basically means if you can't find something that's mutually beneficial, it's going to benefit both parties, then it's no deal. You're just not going to go forward with it. And obviously that's not optimal, but it is better than having it be win-lose or lose-win or (laughs) lose-lose. Now, he actually goes through these elements of a win-win agreement. So there are five elements. It's desired results, guidelines, resources, accountability, and consequences. We're not going to go into the details with these. Again, if you want to grab the book, it's linked for you in the show notes. You can go and read more in depth on these. But it did make me think about my days as a peer mediator, which I can't believe I'm admitting this right now because it was super embarrassing. But when I was in middle school, uh, I was chosen by my teacher to be a peer mediator. So essentially, I completed this two-day training. And actually, we got to go like off campus for this training. It was very fancy. And they taught us how to mediate these arguments between 
like kids. So we would have two students who were having a disagreement. And instead of them going to like a guidance counselor, I would sit in and I would help them find that win-win agreement. And it, and so we literally, we use the same terminology of like win-win. It just brought me back to those days. Can't, can't say it's the fondest memory I have of middle school, but it, you know, it was a good time. It was a good resume builder. I'm so proud of you. So I know that you can think win-win. We just got to get you back there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So how does this whole idea of think win-win apply to teaching? So um, I love how in the book, he also describes think win-win as an emotional bank account. Okay, so we all have emotional bank accounts. And what we do with our relationships and specifically if we're kind of thinking about relationships, I thought a lot about like our student relationships and our coworker relationships when it came to this. Um, you are going to be making deposits and withdrawals into your emotional bank account. So as you're going throughout your day, um, you can make deposits um, where you are really working on kind of building that relationship with either your coworkers or your students. So you're doing something kind of positive in a way to make sure that you're carrying that win-win ideology. Um, But if you're kind of doing something that takes more of the win-lose framework, then you're going to be making withdrawals from your emotional bank account, which I thought that was a really great way of, of just understanding it in general. Yeah. And I mean, we're specifically talking about how to apply this to teaching, but this really works for any relationships that we have. It could be relationships with coworkers or your students or their families, but also personal relationships that you have in your life. Like I started thinking about my emotional bank account with Billy and, you know, this really does apply to so many different areas. Now let's go back to that concept of no deal. I'm thinking about when you have that student who you kind of have to make some kind of a special agreement with, maybe they really struggle to get work done and all they want to do is go on the computer. You might come up with some kind of agreement where it's like, hey, if you work for this amount of time, then you can go on the computer for this amount of time, some kind of agreement like that. And when you're coming up with that agreement, it's really, look, it has to benefit both of us. And you can even explain this to your students. Like, it needs to benefit me. Like I need to make sure you're getting your work done, but it also needs to benefit you. And you can explain, look, if we can't come up with an agreement, then we'll just have no deal. And we won't have any kind of agreement if it's not going to benefit both of us. And I think it's also important to create this atmosphere among your students. He talks a lot about being cooperative and not competitive. And I think that's super important to build within your classroom community and realizing, look, decisions we make as a class really need to benefit all of us, not just one of us. And I also think it's really important that we maintain that atmosphere even when we are not in school. So I know a lot of the times, and I am very much, I put myself into this all the time, is that I will come home and I will vent about, you know, situations that are happening at school, whether it's about my coworkers or whether it's about my students. I do it. I know we all do it out there, right? But When we're doing that, we're taking withdrawals out of our emotional bank account. And so it's important that we, in order to make a major deposit, which is like a really big, like think like stimulus check, big like deposit into your bank account. You like how I threw that in there. Um, But I think when when we think about those like major deposits, it's about maintaining that personal integrity, right? To be loyal to those who are not present, um, especially like when we're at home or when we go out with you know friends or whatever it is. We want to maintain that loyalty to our students and to our coworkers in order to continue growing that emotional bank account. 
That's such a good reminder. And as we move into habit five, so habit five is seek first to understand, then to be understood. This is one of those where I feel like I need to go back and reread it once a month just as a reminder to myself because I think it's something that we all need to work on. And basically, it's the key principle for effective interpersonal communication. And interpersonal communication is huge, not only in our profession of teaching, but just in life. Like we all have to be able to communicate with one another. I really liked this quote from the book. It says, most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. They're either speaking or preparing to speak. And I'll be honest, when I read this one and I'm seated at home, you know, Billy's at work, It made me think about something I've said to Billy a lot because not only do I do it, Billy does it too. Um, And something I always say to him is, you're not listening to me. You're waiting for your turn to speak. And when I read this, I'm like, oh, that's exactly it. Now, I am guilty of it too. It's not just Billy. Like, I totally do this too. But it's where we're just waiting for our turn to share our experiences and our thoughts. We're not actually listening to the other person. We're not practicing empathetic listening. And basically what that means is that we're listening with our ears, eyes, and our heart. And it's this shift from listening to provide an answer when you're listening to someone to really understanding that person that's in front of you, both intellectually and spiritually. Yeah. And Stephen Covey mentions this psychological air. And he mentions that being understood is actually a psychological need for survival. Obviously, we have physical needs for survival, you know, water and food and shelter. But we also have psychological needs as human beings. And one of those is being understood. And so when you are listening to someone empathetically and you're listening both with your ears, your eyes and your heart, you're giving that other person that psychological air. You're allowing them to feel like they are being understood. And part of that listening with your ears and eyes and heart is that body language. And Stephen Covey actually mentions that your body language stands for 60% of the communication that you're having with people. So I really loved this challenge. And I'm going to actually challenge everybody that's listening to this to go and try it out. Find a conversation that's happening. And I want you to not listen to the words, kind of be far away, but really just observe with your eyes to the body language that's happening. That body language is going to tell you exactly how that conversation is going. And it is a really, really interesting perspective on understanding how to become an empathetic listener. So as soon as you finish listening to this podcast, go sit in a park somewhere, go to the mall, socially distancing, of course, and find a conversation just to watch for that body language. Now, what I really like is that Stephen Covey also gives some practices. So how do you actually do this, right? Because it sounds really easy, but then when you go to try to do it, it's like, wait, how do I let that person know that I am understanding them and that I'm listening to understand? I'm not just listening for my turn to talk. And he mentions rephrasing the content of what they're speaking about, but also reflecting their feeling. So I'll give you an example. Let's say Billy comes home from work and he's just ranting to me. He's like, I had the worst day. I have all of these things due and my boss doesn't realize that I don't have enough time to get it done. My response would be, 
okay, like I understand you're feeling frustrated about your workload. So I'm rephrasing the content. So the content of what he told me is it's that workload, but then I'm also reflecting the feeling. He never said I'm frustrated, but because I'm listening to understand and I'm watching his body language, I can tell how tense he is. I realize that he's feeling frustrated. And so by reflecting that feeling, he's going to go, yes, it's exactly it. And he feels like I really understood him, even though he didn't specifically say he was frustrated. You know, I really like that example. And as you're kind of saying that um, and kind of sharing that out loud, I made the connection to responsive classroom training that I had with my district. And so for those of you that don't know, um, I went through responsive classroom training, which was about a week of training on how to be in a responsive classroom, essentially. And so one of the big things that we talk about is the um, the way that we use our words and the type of words that we're using with our students. And a lot of the times those are the exact the exact way that we phrase it. So you say, I notice, or I hear this, or I'm listening to this, or I, I, you know, I'm observing this. So that way you're kind of acknowledging what is it, what, what the students are kind of going through, um, and then working together to be able to kind of come up with that whole, like think when, win side. So it's really cool how I'm making those connections to all of that. Yeah. So within the realm of teaching, obviously this is something you can practice when you have conversations, not only with your students, but also with their families and with your coworkers. I mean, I don't know about you all, but I have coworkers come into my room all the time just to like rant about something. And a lot of times I'm multitasking and I'm calling myself out here. I need to be better about stopping what I'm doing and really listening to understand. And sometimes the best thing you can do is just listen. Sometimes you don't even have to actually respond. They just want to feel like they're being heard. Keep in mind, however, this isn't a strategy that you have to use every time you have a conversation with someone. Like if Bridget calls me on the phone to tell me how excited she is about the lunch she just ate, I don't need to be like, I understand you're very joyful about the guacamole you had for lunch. (laughs) I'm choosing guacamole because Bridget makes bomb guacamole. It's so good. It's my favorite. But I don't need to use this strategy all the time. I'm really using that empathetic listening Anytime emotions are high, that's really when you want to put this skill into practice. And we also need to be mindful of how we are teaching our students to be empathetic listeners, because we do have to teach kids how to be this way. And so oftentimes, I know Michelle and I will do this during some form of a morning meeting. That's kind of the biggest time when we're teaching that that empathetic listening. During share, I mean, how often are kids sharing something and then they kind of turn the conversation around and they try to make it about themselves when really we're trying to listen to what, you know, I'm putting Billy up there. But when Billy's up there sharing about that, he has this really cool, like, you know, player card and he wants to share it with everyone. Well, then all of a sudden you have John over here who makes it all about him. So we have to teach kids how to be empathetic listeners um, and we have to teach them how to listen with their ears, eyes and their heart. And I love that wording because that is very much kid friendly language. I, when Bridget and I saw this in the book, we even thought, hey, we could create like a poster for our room as a reminder that says, listen with your ears, eyes, and heart. Or maybe at the start of my morning meeting, maybe I have a slide that I put up just to remind my students, hey, you're not just listening and waiting for your turn to talk. You are listening, you're looking at their body language, and you're really trying to empathize with how that other student is feeling. 
And I, I feel think- like we just have all the feels right now. We do have all the feels. And I think it's also, you mentioned about how to remind our students, but I also think it's really important to remind ourselves this. Yep. Because how often, like often I will forget little things that I used to do. And it's like, because I'm so busy with the daily emotions and what's kind of happening, you know, in my everyday life, I don't think about it. So it's also really important for us to be reminded of that as well so that we don't lose sight of that. Yeah, I'm even thinking about sometimes during morning meeting when my students are sharing, maybe I'm trying to do the lunch count or I'm trying to submit attendance and like I need to call myself out on that and be better and say, you know what, I need to fully give my students my attention right now and practice empathetic listening because let's be honest, as teachers, we are modeling for our students constantly. They are always watching us and seeing what we're doing. And so we have to really make sure we are not only speaking this and preaching it to our students, but we're practicing it. Yeah, I have to tell you this before we move on to the next habit. But one of the things that I will tell my students is that if I'm not looking at you, I'm not listening to you. So (laughs) (laughs) it's true, though. But I I mean, yeah, because I will oftentimes be like writing something down and then I have kids coming up to me like as I'm transitioning into groups and then I'll have kids come up to me and they start talking and I'm like, I am not looking at you. (laughs) Therefore, I am not (laughs) listening to you. (laughs) And then when I am ready to listen, I will pick my head up and I would look at them and I'm said, okay, now I am ready. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I mean, that's a good, it's a good point. And it's good for kids to realize that, you know what I mean? All right, go ahead and take us into habit six, Bridget. All right. So habit six is synergize. Guys, all of the other habits that we have um, gone over at this point have really prepared you for this moment. This is like intense. I feel like big, intense moment. (laughs) So really, you want to kind of think that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So whereas we would normally think one plus one equals two, in this case, one plus one could be three or more. And the results really and truly exceed all combined efforts of individuals. Now, I will say, as a math teacher, I was cringing a little bit reading this because I'm like, Stephen Covey, that's not true. One plus one does not equal three. (laughs) But I understand what he's trying to say. He's trying to say when we work together, we can be so much more than what we would be individually. So when we think about this applied to teaching, obviously we want our students working together collaboratively. Now, when I think of students working together collaboratively, that very stereotypical image pops in my head of a group, let's just say four students. One of them is really the leader and they're taking control and everyone else is just kind of saying, yep, Johnny, whatever you say, I I, I love that idea. That's not what this is. This really means that our students are going to work together in order to create something even bigger. And Stephen Covey actually mentioned that he had, I guess it was a college class where his students got so excited about something that they ended up creating this whole new thing. And he said, producing something new is more meaningful than reading something old. So it's also getting our students to move from being consumers to being producers. And rather than just consuming knowledge together, they're using those experiences to actually produce something new. Yeah. And guys, I have to kind of tell you really quick. I I mentioned that Michelle was reading the book, the physical book, and that I was listening to an audio book. Well, we actually had two very different versions. Michelle had like the 30th like anniversary version and I did not. So we have like on our notes when we're talking, when we're kind of 
graphing out like what is this podcast going to look like. I'm going to let her just take the lead on this one because I didn't have this in my book. So I'm just going to listen and learn right along with all of you. Yeah. So just so you all realize, if you do go to order the book, the 30th anniversary version is a little bit different because Stephen Covey's son actually adds in these like new insights at the end of each habit. So he just kind of gives these new ideas and maybe things that he's discovered since then, or he gives his perspective rather than it just being the father's perspective. He gives his perspective as well. And the son is the one who wrote that, right? Wrote the teen's book. Yes. Sean Covey, is that his name? I think it's Sean. I think it's Sean. Yeah. So so. Sean Covey wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens, which is the book that Bridget and I read when we were younger. So at the end of this habit, he actually outlines a five-step process for getting synergy to actually happen because he mentions it's not just something that's going to happen on its own. It's something you have to actually work toward. So the first step is to define the problem or opportunity. So figuring out, well, what are we working together to try to solve or what are we working together to try to create. Step two is to hear their way. So this means you are understanding the ideas of others. And that goes back to that previous habit, habit five, seek first to understand, then to be understood. So you're first going to understand the habits or the habits. Oh my gosh, you're going to understand the ideas of others. Then step three is my way. So then you're going to share your thoughts and you're going to seek to be understood by others. Step four is to brainstorm. That means you are creating new options and ideas. You're not choosing one of the options, but you're rather using those ideas to create something even better. And then step five is highway, like two or highway. Uh, And that is basically finding the best solution. So kind of taking all of those parts, so the one plus one, and finding a way to have it equal three instead of just two. And I personally feel like this is a process that you can teach your kids. So when you say you're going to work in collaborative groups, it's not just, okay, who's the recorder? Who's the leader? Like you're actually teaching them how to use their energy together in order to create something even greater. Um, I love that. I think that's a fantastic way to be able to kind of teach kids how to how to work and play cooperatively because they also need to be taught that. I feel like kids need to be taught everything. (laughs) They literally need to be taught everything. Um, Okay, so let's jump into habit number seven. And so habit number seven is one that you're going to do continuously. I feel like one through six are kind of the core pieces. And then habit seven is going to be whenever you just need to kind of touch things up. And habit seven is sharpen the saw. And so Stephen Covey gives this, um, he kind of gives this story of, a lumberjack and that lumberjacks go out and they are chopping wood down all day long. But if they don't stop and they don't sharpen their saw, then they're going to be really inefficient at really cutting down those trees. They're not going to cut down as many as they would if they were to pause and really refresh and make sure that all's working, everything's good to keep going. And when I first read this, I'll be honest, I kind of interpreted it not necessarily the correct way. So I I read this story and I went, oh, that's like making templates because my brain just constantly circles templates. And I went, you know, when teachers are constantly work, 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 if they just stopped and they made a template for some of the things that they're doing, like creating slideshows, it would make their life so much easier. And then I kept writing. And then I kept reading and I realized it was not 
exactly that. So Bridget, do you want to explain what it actually means? But it does means? make sense though. I really did. When when you it kind does. of told me this and we were like walking when we were talking about this because we cheated just a t- little tiny little bit, guys. We didn't cheat a ton. I promise you. But when we did talk about this when we were on our walk, um, it made sense to me because if you're not making sure that those templates are really working for you and you're not kind of readjusting them as you go along through your seasons of life is like what we like to talk about, then it's not going to be efficient. So I think it's the exact same way. But here's what Stephen Covey says. He says it more from the perspective of taking care of yourself in order to maintain what it is that you're doing. So you have four dimensions. You have the physical part that you need to take care of, right? Because if you don't take care of yourself physically, you're going to be run down, tired, and just feeling like poop all the time. Um, You have your social and emotional part that you also have to kind of take care of because Lord knows if you're emotionally not there, then you're not going to be able to help somebody else. Your spiritual. Now for me, I know a lot of you are probably thinking, okay, this is like very religious, but I kind of saw the spiritual piece as more of a reflection and it's really reflecting back onto what everything has been working for you and what hasn't been working for you. And then your mental, which is more about like reading the books and kind of staying on top of your professional development and really kind of growing your mind overall. Now, I know you all have heard the very stereotypical like, well, when you get on an airplane and the air mask drop down, you have to put on your own before you put on someone else's. I'm honestly so tired of hearing that, though, because I'm like, does anyone have a better analogy? Like, I'm so over the whole airbag thing on the on airplanes. So (laughs) I was so thrilled when Stephen Covey had this other analogy. Actually, I don't think it was him. I think it was the sun. I think it was at the last part. The sun mentioned have you ever been too busy driving to take time to get gas? And I was like, oh my gosh, it just clicked for me. I was like, that is such a good analogy because your gas is what keeps your car going. Just like those four dimensions, the physical, the social, emotional, spiritual, and mental. Those are the things that really keep you going as a person. And if you don't take time to refill them, your car, or in this case, you as a person, you're not going to be running anymore. You're going to end up broken down on the side of the road. That's that burnout. That's that stress. That's that overwhelm. So you have to make sure you take time in order to get gas or rather refill those four dimensions so that you can keep driving just as efficiently as you were before. So how does this apply to the teaching piece of it? And I will be very honest. When I first heard this, the first thing that I thought of, guys, was back when Michelle was in second second grade. Was it second grade? It was. Yeah. I still do it now in fourth grade, just not as much. I know. I just feel like I learned it from when you were in second grade. She had ketchup and pickles on Fridays. And so I think that is a genius way of doing it. Um, And really, when we think about it, our kids at the same time need to have those days to be able to rejuvenize and, you know, refill their gas tank in order to keep going. So we have to kind of step away from that mind frame of I always have to be teaching. We always, always, always have to be doing something and have those ketchup and pickles days where we may just kind of be filling up our gas tank, making sure everything's working, that everybody's good, everybody's where they need 
need to be before we continue moving on. Yeah. So those of you that don't know, ketchup and pickles is basically like a ketchup day. So ketchup, meaning students who need to catch up on work. And then pickles were any students who had caught up on all their work. They got to pick a fun activity to do. So I had like STEM bins and things like that, silent reading that they could choose from. And it was a great opportunity not only to get students caught up on work so they're not feeling that overwhelmed. It was a way to refill their gas tank. But it was also a great opportunity for me to pull individual students who needed support in certain areas. So I think about that's like changing your car tire, right? Or putting more windshield wiper fluid in. Like those little things that you have to touch up from time to time, it allows you to really be able to do that with your students. And I also thought about something as simple as just incorporating brain breaks throughout your lesson, right? Like I don't know about you all, but I struggle if a meeting is an hour long, I struggle to sit there and stay focused the whole time. So we cannot expect our students to do that because if we're struggling as adults, goodness knows they're struggling as students. But by incorporating these brain breaks, giving them opportunities to get up and get moving and do something different than what they were just doing, it's going to help be able to refill that gas tank, not only physically if they're moving, but also that mental aspect, the spiritual aspect, the social emotional aspect. And of course, this goes without saying, because I feel as though within our teacher community, this is really, really big and it's self-care. And it's really just making sure that you as a teacher are also taking the time to fill up your gas tank and to making sure that you're doing everything to rejuvenize physically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, and mentally. You have to think about yourself. You have to put yourself first so that you're able to really take care of your students whenever you go back to work. And now more than ever, I think that that's really important because of all the things that are happening in the world, a lot of it's taking a complete mental toll, an emotional toll on so many. So take time, step away from social media if you have to, step away from the TV. It doesn't mean that you don't care. Um, It just means that you care so much that you want to make sure that you take care of yourself so that you can continue, you know, fighting and doing whatever it is right for you. I love that. So that is our overview of the book and our ideas for how this applies to our lives as teachers. We would love for you all to grab your own copy of the book. It will be linked for you in the show notes. If you do grab a copy, we would love for you to head over to our website and leave a comment on this podcast episode. Let us know what habit you really connected with or maybe what habit you need to practice better. For me, it's that think (laughs) win-win. So we would love to hear your insights. Make sure that you grab the copy using the link and then head over to our website in order to leave a comment. And while you are on the website, don't forget to submit your TSH. Uh, We're getting closer to starting back the beginning of the school year. And I know so many of you are are starting to learn the plans for this upcoming year. So what are some of the TSHs that you have? What are some of the things that are kind of sucking you in and really making it to where you're not able to be productive? Is it something that's more of that social emotional piece, that mental piece? Um, Or is it more so something physical? that you're not really aware of how to do. So you're spending all day, all night trying to research something. Um, So leave it there. And don't forget, guys, that we would love it for you to go and leave a review on iTunes. It really helps us to be able to reach a bigger community. And so it will just really help us out overall. So until next time, be timely, stay organized and be productive. Bye bye. See ya.